Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, Life is not meant to be lived alone, especially the Christian life. We are grateful you are here. Uh, We are in the middle of this series on the Gospel of Luke. This morning is Luke chapter 12. If you read Luke chapter 12, if you're reading along with us and you read Luke chapter 12 this week, you probably showed up this week just to see what on earth I would say. Luke chapter 12 is a doozy. Um, Jesus is a bit fired up. And before we get into it, I want to say this. Um, Brian has encouraged us to read along with him in this series, to read uh, the chapter that we're going to be talking about each Sunday, to wrestle with it. And I want to encourage you, uh, wherever you're at in that, to jump in with us. Um, I, I was thinking about this. I have three sons. If I were to feed them one big meal a week, and that's all, they would be malnourished and extremely hungry. And if we depend on Brian or whoever to just feed us one big meal a week, we will be malnourished and extremely hungry. We have to learn to feed ourselves. And this is an incredible gift from God. And so I want to encourage you, uh, whether you started with us or you didn't, you haven't read any of Luke, whatever it is, to jump in with us. Um, To not wait until this summer or until the next sermon series, but to jump in with us, start reading. This next week will be Luke 13. Um, Find some time this week. Wrestle with it. If you will eat on the Word of God this week and wrestle with it, He will shape you, inform you, and feed you. Uh, So wrestle with it this week. Okay, many of us are familiar. A.W. Tozer has this famous saying. Uh, Kyle has talked about it. A lot of us have talked about it. And he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if I think God is an angry dictator... That will shape how I interact with God and will shape how I interact with all of the relationships in my life. It will shape how I treat sin, how I treat gifts, how I treat blessings, all of these things. If I see God as a benevolent benefactor, as a genie in the sky that gives me whatever I want, that will shape the decisions that I make and how I treat other people and my relationship with God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want to take that and apply it this morning to Jesus. What comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? And what if that is the most important thing about you? How do you see Jesus? How do you view Jesus? And what I want us to wrestle with this morning is, does Luke chapter 12 fit your view of Jesus? Does how you see Jesus and view Jesus fit with Luke chapter 12? And if not, that's okay. Let's wrestle with that. Philip Yancey has a famous book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And at the end of that book, he has a quote in there from an American psychiatrist named Scott Peck. And Scott Peck was kind of new to faith, he was new to Jesus, and he made the wise decision to read it for himself. 
He had heard all these things. He had all these questions. He wasn't sure, but he decided to read it for himself. And Scott says this about Jesus. When he read it for himself, he says this. I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels. I discovered a man who was almost continually frustrated. His frustration leaps out of virtually every page. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? I also discovered a man who was frequently sad, sometimes depressed, frequently anxious and scared. A man who was terribly, terribly lonely, yet also desperately needed to be alone. I discovered a man so incredibly real that no one could have made him up. And then he says this about Jesus. It occurred to me that if the gospel writers had been into PR embellishment, public relations embellishment, as I had assumed, they would have created the kind of Jesus three quarters of Christians still seem to be trying to create. Portrayed with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on the head, just strolling the earth with his unflappable, unshakable equanimity. But the Jesus of the gospels who some suggest is the best-kept secret of Christianity, did not have much peace of mind, as we ordinarily think of peace of mind in the world's terms. And insofar as we can be his followers, perhaps we won't either. Obviously, I haven't talked to Scott Peck, but I wonder if he wrote that reflection after reading something like Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 is proof that Jesus did not have a PR team. If Jesus had a PR team, they never would have allowed Luke chapter 12 through. And I've been convicted this week that I think, and this is heartbreaking to me, but Western Christianity has somewhat removed Luke chapter 12 from our view of Jesus. We don't know what to do with the Jesus that we find in Luke chapter 12. It has hit me this week and convicted me this week that my view of Jesus oftentimes struggles to fit, to jibe with the Jesus that we read about in Luke chapter 12. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. Let's get into it. Here's what we're going to do this morning. I broke it into some sections. I'm going to give you what I think is the main point that Jesus is making, and then I'm also going to try and walk you through some of the obstacles that arise from what Jesus has said. So this first section, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to read it. You can read it. Hopefully, maybe you'll read it this afternoon, wrestle with it. But here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. Wake up. Judgment is coming. Wake up. Don't be hypocrites. Don't act one way on the outside and a whole other way on the inside. Don't put on this show on the outside and then be somebody completely different on the inside. William Barclay says, God would rather have a blunt, honest sinner than someone who puts on an act of goodness. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of the physical things here on earth that can hurt you. Be afraid of the one who can ruin your life. Be afraid of the enemy who can destroy your soul. Jesus is saying, wake up to what the Spirit is doing. Jesus is saying, be open to the Spirit. And when he leads you and convicts you, repent. Don't ignore that. 
So some obstacles. There's some big obstacles in this first section. Uh, I think the main ones are verse 5 and verse 10. Verse 5, I think the reason we struggle with verse 5 is because we don't understand the power of God. We don't understand how damaging sin is. We'll get to that a little bit later. But what if our greatest fear was not the things here on this earth, but was a reverent, incredible awe of who God is? William Barclay talks about the Scottish minister, John Knox. And he said that when they buried him, it was said of this man, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. That was Jesus. Jesus had this incredible fear of God. He knew the power of God was so great that he didn't fear the things on this earth. So a storm could come and he's sleeping because God is powerful. His friends can talk behind his back and it doesn't bother him because God is powerful. His friends can betray him. It doesn't bother him because God is powerful. Don't worry about those around you who could hurt you. They have no power compared to the power of God. Now verse chapter 10 is an obstacle. And what makes it especially hard, part of this is Luke's fault. Um, In Mark chapter 3 and Matthew 12, Matthew and Mark kind of say the same thing about the Holy Spirit that Luke says here. But in Mark 3 in Matthew 12, it comes in this context of Jesus has just done this healing, and now the Jewish people are saying that the healing that he did was actually Satan doing it, not God. And so Jesus is obviously mad. He's like, hey, I just did this healing, and now you're giving credit to Satan. You're saying this is Satan. It's not. It's the Spirit. Don't say that the Spirit is actually Satan. He's getting fired up about that. It's tricky in Luke 12 because we have a different narrative context. But what's probably going on is Jesus is probably addressing a similar type of thing. But the second thing that makes, helps us make sense of verse 10 is this. And most all scholars agree on this. Jesus is not talking about a one-time thing. He's talking about a persistent rejection of the Spirit. Just a continual rejection of God's loving spirit in our life. And we know this, right? He's acknowledging the human reality that some people continue to ignore the love of God. I I knew someone in high school who was scared to death of verse 10. Like this verse kept him up at night. He was afraid that he had committed this sin or that he would commit this sin. And if you're reading in N.T. Wright's commentary, I love how he addresses this. N.T. Wright says, Once you declare that the spring of fresh water is in fact polluted, you will never drink from it. The one sure thing about what Jesus is saying in verse 10 is that if someone is anxious about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, their anxiety is a clear sign that they have not. What does he mean there? Once we declare the Spirit of God as evil, we'll cut ourselves off from it and we'll miss out on it. But if we are convicted that we don't want to resist the Spirit, well then that's evidence that we're open to the Spirit, right? I love how N.T. Wright says that. All right, next section. 
Luke chapter 12, 13 through 34. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Wake up. God will take care of you. Wake up. God will take care of you. The problem with the rich fool is that he was consumed with himself. Life is all about self for the rich fool and his words indict him. He's talking, listen, he says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops, my barns. I'll say to myself. It's all about him. The Romans had a proverb that money was like salt water. The more you drank, the thirstier you became. Money is an awful caregiver. It will take all of you, leave you empty, and can leave you convinced that the answer to your problem is more of it. It's an awful caregiver. But look at how God cares for us. Jesus is saying, look at how he cares for the ravens. Look at how he cares for the lilies. God alone can take care of you. Money can't take care of you. Worry can't take care of you. Control can't take care of you. God can take care of you. The rich man is convinced that if he can get more and hang on to his more, then life will be good. And often we're convinced of the same thing, right? If we can get more and hang on to our more, then life will be good. And Jesus says, no, wake up. Let me take care of you. Here's the obstacle. Does Jesus mean it? Does Jesus really mean this? Is he serious? And I'm convinced he was. That Jesus was serious. Again, does this fit with our view of Jesus? Jesus is absolutely convicted that he does not want us to waste our one life thinking that life is all about stuff. Jesus is absolutely trying to save us from the lie that thinking that life is all about how much money you make or at what age you can retire or how many toys you can have. He's saying life is not all about that. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. I, I love my sons. I want them to play sports. But I try, I need you to hold me accountable on this, to be abundantly clear with them that the goal of life is not sports. The goal of life is to love God and be loved by God and to love others. The goal of life is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and make disciples. The goal of life is to be loved by Jesus and know his love and love other people. God, Jesus wants to wake us up. He knows that many of us will have money. We will have some success. We will have some toys. And he wants to wake us up and say, that is not what life is all about. He wants us to live with open palms, to be incredibly generous, to not worry, and to trust that he will take care of us. Next section, verses 35 through 48. Jesus says, wake up, take your faith seriously. Okay, Trip, don't listen to this part. When I was in college, um, 
we had this thing at the school that I went to that they would come and check our rooms once a week to make sure that our dorm rooms were still suitable for human life, okay? And so we would do what we always did. We, during the week, we would, I mean, clothes would pile up, dishes would pile up, trash would pile up. And then that, week, that hour before our room was about to be checked was frenzied madness. It was crazy. We were running around, pick up clothes, take out the trash, wash the dishes, try to make the room look okay. And they would come in. Most of the time we would pass. Sometimes they would say, you didn't do enough, we'll come back later that night. And we would try to clean it up. And then we would do the same thing week after week after week. What a way to live, right? And Jesus says, don't do that with your faith. That so often our faith is we ignore it for as long as we can. We put as little time into it as we can. We wake up, try to get by, and then we repeat. Jesus says, wake up, take your faith seriously. I talk often with our students about Dallas Willard has this idea of being a vampire Christian. He says, we want the blood of Jesus, but not the life of Jesus. We want the blood of Jesus to wash us clean, but not the life of Jesus to lead us. And Jesus is saying, take my life seriously. Take faith seriously. Jesus, in John 17, 4, says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus took his faith extremely seriously. He believed that what God had gifted him and given him to do was so important he was going to give his whole life to it. Do you feel that way about your life? Are you taking your faith seriously? Are you doing all that you can with the gifts that God has given you to complete the work that he has given you to do? Now here's the obstacle. Does this mean we are saved by what we do? Does this mean I always have to keep my dorm room clean? Does this mean I always have to be doing, doing, doing? It's easy to read this part and feel like I always have to be working, working, working. And again, I think of Dallas Willard as this great quote. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Jesus is not contradicting what he will do on the cross. We are saved by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Grace is a gift that we cannot earn. He's not contradicting what Paul is going to say later on. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Grace is a free gift that you cannot earn that I have given you. Don't take that gift, open it up, and then put it on the shelf and never enjoy it. Instead, take this free gift of faith that I have given you, open it up, and give your life to it. Fasten yourself to this gift of faith. Trust it with all that you have. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. The goal of faith is God. And the heartbreaking thing is when we like do the dorm room thing where we just kind of ignore God and we only give him one, one hour a week or whatever it is, we miss out on God. The goal of our faith. 
The one that we were created to walk with. And Jesus knows that. He knows that more than we do. And so he's saying, take it seriously because it's an incredible gift that you were created for and life is found in God alone. Next, last section, verses 49 through 59. I think Jesus is saying this, wake up, trust Jesus with all that you have. Wake up and accept the baptism that Jesus is calling you to. Wake up and understand that sometimes faith requires hard things. Wake up and realize that not everyone will take faith seriously, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Wake up and pay attention to what God is doing. It's interesting, if you read this, it seems like Jesus is not afraid of calling us to things that might cause us to suffer of calling us to things that might be hard. He doesn't seem afraid of that. And it should make sense, right? He wasn't afraid of that in his own life. God called him to lots of hard things that I think we would all agree were good. They were good for us, good for the kingdom, good for the world. So sometimes he calls us to hard things. Here's the obstacle. Has Jesus lost his mind? What is he saying? Why is he saying this? What is he doing? If you're reading along in N.T. Wright's commentary, I love how he explains this last part of scripture. He gives the example of Beethoven. Okay, and so he said Beethoven would oftentimes do this thing with his audiences where he would have this nice, polite crowd. And he would play this beautiful peaceful, relaxing peace. And he would play it, and he would play it, and he would play it, and he would kind of lull them into believing that all was right in the world. He would kind of lull them into this beautiful, peaceful, relaxing place. And then right towards the end, if he played this beautiful, peaceful peace, and they're lulled into believing this, he would take his forearm and slam it down on the keys and just they would just like what on earth just happened and he would laugh he would get a laugh out of it and I wonder I kind of like what N.T. Wright said I think maybe that's what Jesus is doing with all the love and the passion that he can master he is slamming his forearm down on the keys and saying wake up Jesus has not lost his mind hot take Jesus has not lost his mind. He is thinking completely crystal clear. What he's afraid of is that we've lost our mind. He's afraid that we are afraid of what he has called us to. He's afraid that we are afraid of standing up for him. He's afraid that we are afraid of surrendering everything to him. Jesus hasn't lost it. He's afraid that we've lost it. What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? Does Luke chapter 12 fit your view of Jesus? James Bryan Smith, he's an author and professor. Many of us are reading here this year. Um, He tells a story about he was speaking at a conference. And the, the way that this conference would work is somebody would speak and then somebody would come up after that person had spoken and, and do a Q&A, ask them some questions. And so James Brown Smith says he gave this talk 
And then the great Dallas Willard comes up, and Dallas Willard's asking him some questions. They're kind of having this back and forth. And then Dallas Willard asks James Bryan Smith, he says, does God ever let us get away with anything? Does God ever let us get away with anything? And James Bryan Smith says, instantly my mind just started spinning. And I was like, okay, if I say yes, the implications to that are this. If I say no, the implications to that are this. And he said, I just couldn't compute. And he said, so finally I just said, I don't know, Dallas, what do you think? Which he said was, was the right answer. But Luke 12 seems like a Jesus who doesn't let us get away with anything. Seems like a Jesus who is warning us to wake up and watch out. Luke 12 seems like a Jesus who cares about judgment. What do we do with that? Is it good news that Jesus won't let us get away with anything? Is it good news that Jesus wants us to wake up and watch out? N.T. Wright says this, If God is a good God, he must react extremely strongly against that which destroys, defaces, or corrupts human life. Is God good if he doesn't care about sin that destroys us and kills our relationship with him? Is God good if he sees us sleepwalking through life and doesn't try to wake us up? Is God good if he knows that judgment is real and he doesn't say anything? James Bryan Smith says sometimes when he's trying to get the attention of his class, he will say this, we need a God of wrath. And if you know James Bryan Smith, he is grace, grace, grace. And so he says, we need a God of wrath. And his students go, wait, what did you say? And he says this, he says, wrath is not God's anger on steroids. Wrath is, as we see it in scripture, God's right disposition towards sin. Wrath is God's right attitude towards sin. I don't want a God who doesn't care about sin. I don't want a God who doesn't care about injustice. I don't want a God who doesn't care about the things that will hurt me. James Brown Smith, he gives the awesome example of the organization of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And he says they, these mothers are mad about this thing that has killed their kids. And they should be mad about it. And it's wrong and it's heartbreaking. He says no one gets upset with these moms who are mad about their kids being killed by drunk drivers, right? I want a God who loves me so much that he gets mad about the things that steal life from me. I want a God who loves me so much that he gets mad when I'm sleepwalking through life and not taking advantage of the incredible gift of faith that he gave his life for. Luke 12 gives us a clear view of Jesus. A God who has a right disposition towards sin, who loves us so much that he won't put up with the sin in our life. If I could, I want to ask our elders and ministers to move to their places around the room. When I was growing up, I got the opportunity to play basketball for one of the greatest high school basketball coaches ever. And it's not an exaggeration. 
He was incredible, won 20 state championships or something, so many games. And I got to play a couple seasons for him in, in middle school. And he is, was, is the, the most soft-spoken, calm, peaceful man maybe I've ever been around. He's always just teaching, coaching. He never raised his voice. I mean, he's just a picture of serenity. I'm not exaggerating. And I remember we were playing with him, and we were playing this game. We are playing in a tournament. We had an eight-point lead or so at halftime. We come out of halftime, and me and the other point guard just... We, we commit like three or four brutal turnovers. This easy turnover. We turn the ball over easy. We're not even trying. And they, it was one of those easy turnovers. They just converted it quickly right into a layup. And so before we know, we're two minutes into the game. Our lead is gone. He calls timeout, gathers us in the huddle. He throws his clipboard down. He says, what are you doing? Come on, guys. We had never heard him raise his voice before. It grabbed our attention. I mean, we were like looking around like, who is this guy? Why did he say that? Because he cared about winning. He cared about us. I was talking to to Cal about this earlier this week. Think about the coach or the teacher who had the biggest impact on your life. Think about the coach or the teacher that had the biggest impact on your life. My guess is, is that maybe you didn't like them so much at first. But they loved you so much, and they loved what they were doing so much, that they got something out of you that you didn't know was there. They pushed you to a level that you didn't know was there. They wouldn't let you settle for less than you were capable of. They wouldn't let you be lazy. They loved you too much. To let you just skate by. What if Jesus is more like that than we think? That he loves us so much. He wants to wake us up. And say, wake up. Use this gift of faith. I think this morning Jesus wants with as much passion and love and grace as he can muster to grab us by the face and say, wake up. Wake up. Stop messing around with sin. Wake up. Stop settling for a weak, small faith. Wake up and stop worrying so much and let me take care of you. Wake up and stop spending so much time on so many other things and so little time with me. Wake up. James Bryan Smith says, Our God is a God of lavish, incomprehensible, shocking love. And our God is a God of unbending truth and unwavering justice. He is the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Wake up. God loves us too much to let us keep sleepwalking through life. Let's stand and sing.